This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast. John Higgs has joined this show before to tell us about William Blake, James Bond and the Beatles. And now he's back, exploring the legacy of another iconic British cultural export, the electronic band sometimes called the KLF. John's just released a new edition of his book trying to understand why the band set fire to a million pounds before disappearing from our culture. And his attempt to figure that out takes him very, very far beyond the scope of what we might typically think a music biography should include. I sat down with him last week to find out more. John, I'm 36. The KLF was massively famous in my lifetime. They were the biggest singles band in the world. But I've never heard of them, and nor have any of my millennial friends. Or at least I had never heard of them until I read your book. Why is that? Yeah, that's kind of why the book needed to exist, I think. it's they. No band has come so close to removing themselves from musical history as they did. You know, no band has sort of owned all, their, all the rights, all their music, and was able to delete it all when they wanted to walk away from the music industry. So you never hear it heard in, you know, I know adverts or film soundtracks or game soundtracks or, or anything like that. They were, as you say, the biggest selling a singles band in the entire world in 1991. You know, they won the Brit Award for Best Band or co-won it with, with Simply Red. They were such a big deal. And the fact that you and your generation I know nothing about them is fascinating to me. You mentioned that they co-won the Brit Award with Simply Red. Yeah. Is their music like Simply Red? No, it's, it, was, it, was, um, it was quite a hard thing for them to, to come to terms with, really. There was the the music industry saying, you know, you're, you're, you're the best. You're the best a band can be. You're as good as Simply Red. It's a bit of a mixed message for a lot of people that. They'd sort of set themselves up as the forces of chaos at war against the music industry. So when the industry just embraced them like that and made them co-winners with Simply Red, it was, you know, I, I think few winners of the best band at the Brits could be more mortified than they were. And I, I love the fact that their response was to take the, the winner's trophy and like bury it in a field near Stonehenge somewhere. And, and then a, a farmer dug it up and went, oh, this, this is the Brit Award for the KLF. I better send it to them. And so they then had to go back and bury it deeper. <laughs> what kind of music did they make? Uh, stadium house is is the is the, is a great term for the, the most the most commercial period anyway. There was a period when they were just having number one after number one, massive, um, very much rooted in the rave scene, but hugely um, crafted and, and commercial and uh, brilliant. Really, really immediately brilliant. They they have a, a strong hand in the creation of ambient house. Uh, you know, they start off more in a hip hop sort of way, but it's really those sort of rave-based songs like 3 a.m. Eternal, Last Train to Transcendental, Justified and Ancient, 
and what time is love it's song it's songs like that that we remember them for because they they sound great still today and you're naming the songs but no one my age has ever heard them john so (laughs) it doesn't mean anything youtube is right there you can can find these things they're they're absolutely yeah i mean it's it's extraordinary it's extraordinary that um you know for most bands they have a period of, of success and then it's uh a case of maintaining the legacy you know and it's like 20th edition 20th anniversary box sets and it's like you know a tour with various other bands where they just do the old songs and there's a sort of um a cabaret like circuit where you can you know you can ring out uh, a lifetime's worth of income from you know two or three hit singles klf do not behave like that in any way shape or form their, their values are very very different uh, and as I said, I mean, I'm sure we'll get to it. They're probably most well known for the fact that they took the money that they earned, which was a million pounds, and they set fire to it. I'm sure, I'm sure that's going to come up in the conversation. But the fact that they also deleted their entire back catalogue would have cost them far more. You know, five million is a common estimate of, of what they gave up by just like refusing to, you know, allow uh, use of their music for uh, any, any further or to be sold or to be used in any way. It's just um, different different values. You don't get taught that at the Brit school. There's a difference between not earning money mm. and destroying money. Yes. So let's pick up on the destruction of the million pounds because this was an outrageous thing to do in the eyes yes. of many people at the time. It was awful. Tell us about the burning of the million pounds. Set the scene for us. Well, it was. You can set the scene. It's the Isle of Jura in the Scottish Hebrides. And it's August, uh, it's, it's midnight on the morning of August the 23rd, 1994. And Bill and Jimmy and uh, a roadie called Gimpo and a journalist called Jim Reed have flown up to Jura with this with two suitcases just full of 50 pound notes. A uh, million pound in all. Uh, and they just go to this, it's one of the most remote sort of places you can get to in the British Isles. And they just find this deserted boathouse. And they just open the cases and they just, there's a fireplace at the end of it. So they just start setting fire to note after note after note. And I always say, you know, it's one thing to start burning a million pounds, but to finish burning a million pounds is it's something quite else. It took, it took I think, a couple of hours or or something like that. It was tedious. It was boring. And they've never really been the same since. They've never really recovered from just the, uh, you know, the, the visceral awfulness of, of this act. And what really gets me about it is they couldn't explain it. They couldn't say why they did it. They didn't do it for reason X, you know. They just, there was just a compulsion, and it was a compulsion so strong that they had to act on it. And they did. And if they can ever be forgiven for it, I don't know. But that's that's what we remember them for now. That That's shocking. That shocking act. You have tried to solve the question of why they burn the money. Have I indeed? I, well, I've certainly, I've certainly talked around it a lot. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not going to have a, um, a nice, neat, one-sentence answer that everyone goes, oh, yeah, that's it. At the time... People were furious because they thought it was just a cry for attention. Yeah, I mean, it's your immediate action, reaction, really, if you're honest, is like if they didn't want the money, you know, 
I'd have had it. You know, they, they could they could have given it to me. So you, you, you're slightly appalled because subconsciously it's like your money they have just burnt because. Uh, but once you accept that, you know, there's no circumstances in which they were just going to give you their million pounds. Um, and you get a bit, you know, you can look at it in a bit more dispassionate sort of way. People talk about, well, you should have given it to charity, which makes a lot of sense. But, you know, there's, there's um, we don't know how much charity they gave or anything like that. It's, it's a very much a separate thing. And it's a whole sort of, I think church is the right word, that's sort of grown up around this act as a church of the, the burn, where, where money burners um, view the burning of money in very um, spiritual terms, in, very, in terms of forgiveness. It's like, you know, every culture has a, a, has a history of um, sacrifice of some form in their religious thinking. Um, and there's no real way to perform sacrifice that's ethically fair. Uh, if, you know, you're, you're going to sacrifice a goat, it's not really fair on the goat, you know, but to burning money is the only way that you're, you, the sacrificer, is the, is the one to suffer. It's sort of, it's sort of giving with absolutely no hope of reward uh, or, or, or anything coming back. It's a very, very strange and pure act. And, you know, there's magazines about money burning and, and things these days. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's there's a subculture uh, of, of it bubbling on. And they hold what Bill and Jimmy did to be quite, quite extraordinary. Now, at the time, no one was reacting like this at all. Uh, you know, at the time, people were just um, furious. You know, they just thought it was a, it was just attention seekers, really. You know, just, I, you know, I discuss in the book the question of whether they're just a pair of attention seeking arseholes. Because um, that was pretty much most people's conclusion. But, you know, in the music industry, there are a lot of attention-seeking arseholes. And they don't tend to behave like that. This is very different to the way, you know, uh, you know most attention-seeking musicians would behave. And it's, it's, not, it's not the fact that it was the money was wasted. You know, we're used to that. We're used to Elton John, you know, wasting money, say. There was a, there was a, a court case where it came out how many millions he was you know, uh, had gone on flowers um, and it was, you know, talked around a bit because there's a sense that flowers may be record company, you know, accounting, accounting sort of euphemism for something. Um, but it didn't seem to bother people that, that Elton John waste that sort of money because, you know, it was his money, you know, it's, it's fitted with his sort of character, you know, it, it sort of, he, he, if he wastes it, it then sloshes around the economy and stuff like that. But to destroy it, you know, to, to, to negate it, to sort of deny it, to stop it from existing is such a taboo. It's such a, a shocking, you know, uh, thing that feels wrong on um, so many levels. that It's really worth trying to think about why it feels so taboo and what's so sort of appalling about it, I think, anyway. Let's agree for the sake of argument that it was reprehensible. Right. <laughs> Was it art? Well, that's a very good question. It's um, when the, the idea was, was there that they, they should destroy this money, the thought of we'll do it in an art gallery um, came up pretty quickly. And they, they very quickly decided no, because if they just did it in an art gallery, it would be art. It may be terrible art or bad art, but it would be seen as, as art. Uh, the, it was a frame to sort of understand it, and it would not be in any way uh, 
it, 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 would, it would be a smaller sort of easily comprehended thing. And that's not what they, they ultimately did. And it's easy to think that because after they stopped making records as the KLF, Bill and Jimmy, this is the, 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 the two members of the band, they still work together. And they call themselves an art foundation, the K Foundation. And it's, I can't think of any other example of musicians who are in a band who stop making music and yet continue to work together. There's maybe uh, married couples and things like that. But uh, other than that, it just doesn't happen. It's, it's very unusual. It's almost like the, the purpose of what they were doing wasn't the music. What they, were, they were driven by something more. They had sort of uh, deeper, deeper goals. And, you know, certainly the, um, I don't think the art world would say it was art. You know, they're, they're very sniffy about, particularly musicians or people who, who uh, come from another line of work or industry and then try to become artists. You know, they, they don't accept those sort of people in very, very much. You have to be, you have to go to the right art school and things like that to, to, to have the um, credibility that the art world sort of needs. And Bill and Jim will never have that. You know, there's no way the art world are going to embrace them. So I, I feel that the, the description of it is whether it's art diminish. I think it's bigger than that. You know, I think it's more interesting. Than Let, that. Let's let's agree then that it's an oversimplification to say that it was art. Um, but can you tell us about the tradition of performance art? And I'm thinking here of Dada and of the Situationists, mm. which the KLF saw themselves at least partially inheriting. Yeah, they, I mean, it's, it does make sense to see them in the, in that in that sort of vein. There's a lot of Situationism that sort of makes sense around them. There's the sense that. Um, you know, I, I do talk a bit about Dada in the book, and Dada was very much sort of, you know, a, a rejection of the the society that created it. You know, the uh, the world of you know uh, emperors and czars and and kaisers, and uh, uh, that could that could bring the world to you know something as horrible as World War One. That wasn't a civilization that artists should be, you know, uh, glorifying anything like that. So. The, the gibberish of the Dada sort of movement was almost a perfect reaction to it. But um, uh, and there's, a, there's a lot of similarity, but all these things managed to be absorbed in time. You know, whatever attack you make, this is where this, this is situation is done. Whichever attack you make on the, on the system, you know, that will be absorbed and you will be claimed uh, in, you know, in the same way that, um, you know, the, the music of the Sex Pistols was played for the Queen at the 2012 London Olympics or, you know, the, the music of Nirvana was like covered by the Muppets, you know. There's, there's no way to sort of attack the, uh, uh, the system to destroy it without, you know, becoming part of it. And that seemed to be what their um, retreat from it was all about, was the sort of realisation that was the, the only thing they could do was to um, not play that game. Uh, and and that's what the deleting of their back catalogue seems to be to me. Sort of you know not letting the industry sort of continue to have it and and profit off it and and stuff like that. And it was almost like the they destroyed you know they they, they ended the band. They deleted their back catalogue. They they sort of did everything they could not to play the game. But they'd still got all this money that they'd earned, all this money that they'd sort of made in the in the uh, music industry, and it had that tainted air. 
you know, it says this money felt tainted to them. Uh, and that was one another of the sort of driving things that sort of took them to that boathouse endurer and that uh, sparking that lighter, uh, that fateful night. I think their planned response to the Brits is even better than burning a million pounds in terms of an act of complete anarchic craziness. They were going to uh, get a sheep and dismember the sheep with chainsaws <laughs> on, on stage just, at the Brit. And you, this can't, is the op- you can't not laugh at that. I mean. It's the opening act as well. It's the opening <laughs> act of the Brits. I mean, where would you where I mean, would you go from that? And I think there was. Uh, um, uh, a desire to do something so appalling that they would never be forgiven for it. You know, they could never be forgiven. Uh, but as it happens, they decided to um, do a version of, you know, one of their massive rave singles um, with the grindcore band Extreme Noise Terror. And Extreme Noise Terror were all like hardline vegans. And when they heard about this, they were absolutely, you know, they were appalled. that was not happening at all. So that this poor dead sheep that was in the back of their van was eventually just sort of dumped on the steps after after the after party with sort of blood running down the steps so that all the you know the rich and the powerful the music industry had to wade through this blood of this sheep to sort of get home that night. It wasn't a a successful act by any chance, <laughs> no. Which. Uh, Whatever that, whatever that would mean. I mean, it was it was still a great performance. You know, I had a machine gun and, and he was sort of, Bill Drummond was sort of, you know, machine gunning down the audience. And um, it was so loud because the sort of grindcore music wasn't really known by the mainstream at that point. For a lot of people, they wouldn't have seen it as music, you know. Now it's used to sell energy drinks or something like that. We're familiar with these more extreme things. But at, at the time, 94, Four ninety five, whatever it was, you know, to start a, 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 a it wasn't how the mu- British music industry wanted to present itself to the world by any chance. Put it that way. Before they were the KLF, they called themselves the Justified Ancients of Mumu. Yeah, and this ridiculous name has quite a complicated backstory. Very complicated backstory. Yeah, and it's an odd name. I remember, I remember hearing it on the radio at the time, and it was just wrong. You know, words like justified, you know, ancient. These weren't words that you hear in pop music. You know, it was coming from somewhere else. I didn't know where. I didn't know it was part of this grand conspiracy trilogy by Robert Anton Wilson and and Bob Shea called the Illuminatus Trilogy. And in that book, the justified ancients of Mumu um, were, well, the Scordian uh, group. They sort of represented the forces of chaos within the music industry. So that's why they sort of... Uh, claimed it and it all goes down all a lot of this this stuff and a lot of this discordian history in britain anyway uh, stems from uh, a theater director called ken campbell and this maverick wild uh, amazing guy called ken campbell who uh, down a back street in liverpool in matthew street which is where the cavern was he put on um, a play of the illuminatus trilogy in 1976 I think it was about an eight-hour play or something like that with sort of no money and, you know, nothing behind it. And the people involved are still not the same, I think it's probably fair to say. You know, there's a lot of interesting actors like Jim Broadbent and Bill Nye were sort of part of it. They were they were not known then. They were just sort of, you know, random people and um, random actors trying to, trying, to, trying to get a start. 
Um, and it's just, it was just a mind-bending uh, adaptation of this novel that really aims to sort of um, shake your understanding of, you know, reality or consensus reality. It's, it was quite a potent thing. I mean, Bill Drummond was the stage manager of this. Uh, he had to make these these sets for this, this epic tale of, you know, world domination. But he had to make them small enough that they could be carried up the stairs. There's a little tiny winding stairway. So they, they, he made all these weird scale sets, which were all sort of uh, disorientating, but perfect for it. And uh, his... His guidance by Ken Campbell was to keep asking himself the question, is it heroic? So he painted these words, is it heroic, on the wall of his of the studio where he was making the sets. Uh, and that's kind of been a bit of a guiding thing for him ever since, I think. You know, you're working away. Is it? Is it heroic? Is it impossible? Ken Campbell has never wanted to do anything that seemed remotely possible. You know, he kind of figured that if it was impossible and you go and do it anyway, it's going to have a certain energy to it. Something's going to take over at a certain point. And it was such a, uh, it was such an inspiring, crazy, insane person for all these, you know, young actors and musicians and, and things to, to, to be around. And yeah. And in, and in the roots of all, all that discordian tradition, that's where the KLF started to, to emerge from. You see a lot of ideas, um, in those books that run through their career. Uh, surprisingly so, given that, you know, I don't think either of them actually bothered to read the book all the way through. And, That's one uh, of the themes of their career, isn't it? It's um, being influenced by things that they only are half-heartedly interested in and they don't yeah. really know about, but they know just enough to take it and run, like situationism. They're being swept along, it, it feels, not in a rational way, not in a logical way. There's no decision that they ever made that would withstand a committee, you know. Uh, and I think for a generation that grew up watching shows like, you know, The X Factor and you know, the Simon Cowell reality shows, who were sort of taught that to be a musician, you had to do it right. And, the, and there were judges who knew how it should be done and, how, and what was right. So your aim was to please these judges. Um, it's the opposite of that. The notion that if they know how it should be done, it's clear that, well, it must have been done already. And if it had been done before, did it really need to be, to be done again? Because the KLF were much more about honouring the creative impulse within them, regardless of where it ran to, or regardless of how insane it, it may seem. Uh, and by doing that, they did produce these songs, which you've never heard, but, you know, which I really recommend you go in, and dig out, um, because they have, you know, s something about them that the latest, you know, well-trained drama school singers just don't. They, they were coming from a very sort of deep place in, in a way that music kind of has to if it's to last and, and to matter and be important, I think. The music they made as the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo, a lot of it was destroyed. Yeah. And it was destroyed because it was illegal. Yeah, it was. It was the early days of sampling. And I can see parallels now with the early days of a lot of AI music things. Um, 
in that no one's quite sure what you're allowed to do, you know, what's what's acceptable. For them, sampling wasn't just like a case of, you know, just finding a good beat or, or getting a, a sound from a record and reusing it. They were taking just huge chunks of records by the Beatles and ABBA, not for what they sounded like, but because it was the Beatles and ABBA. It was like trying to re- reclaim all that and uh, uh, using it. There's a situationist term, detournement, which comes from the idea that, you know, we live in a society in which advertising is forced on you every day, whether you want it or not. You can never escape it. You can never get away from it. The only honourable thing to do in these circumstances is to fuck with it. And that was the spirit of why they were doing these things to Beatles records and ABBA records and things like that. And needless to say, the uh, lawyers, particularly ABBA's lawyers, were really not happy about it. And uh, as a result, uh, pretty much most copies of their debut Justified Ancients and Moo Moo album were burnt in a, a field in, in Sweden. And, at the, and now you look back and you go, well, it's not surprising. Now. What were they thinking? You know, how did they think they'd get away with it? But this, you can see similar things when people, uh, you know, are using an AI uh, to change their voice to sound like, you know, Drake or or someone like that and putting out a record uh, as them or an AI version of them. Um, because, you know, unless people experiment and play with it and, and muck around and, and try things, there's no sort of consensus as to what's acceptable, you know, what needs legal uh, you know, support and uh, a structure around, or, or what, or what's fine. You know, what's fine for musicians to experiment with. We didn't, we didn't sort of know. Uh, they very much fell on the wrong side of um, the burgeoning legal understanding of, of of what sampling would be used for. Definitely, yeah. I mean, Bill thought it was acceptable enough that he went to try and meet Abba because he thought that if he could persuade Abba that this was all good fun, they would mm. let him do it. <laughs> yeah, I know. No one no one thinks that would have ever worked. But <laughs> it's what Bill, what Bill thought. <laughs> you know, again, it's about that honouring that, uh, that initial impulse within you, regardless of how crazy it is, you know. Um, the fact that he then they went to do this and they, they got the ferry over and they um, had all these records. And it, and it became a wild story in the pages of the NME, which involved them being shot at by uh, farmers and all sorts of crazy ad- adventures that going on, which were pretty much made up uh, by, the, by the writer, I think. And doing all that sort of fed into their myth. You know, the notion that the KLF emerged out of this bonfire. Uh, I mean, the first KLF... Uh, record was a song called Burn the Bastards and it was about having to burn all their justified ancients and Mumu sort of records uh, it's, at that point they had no idea where they were going and they had no idea that it was all going to end with them burning a million pounds or anything like that but with hindsight you know it seems preordained it seems that they, it seems there was a clear sort of uh, uh, a path that they were following they just had no idea of it at the time you know they they, they, they had a they had a reputation of being uh, expert media manipulators. That was how they were usually seen. They'd, they'd had a number, a novelty number one record based around the Doctor Who theme. 
Uh, and then they'd written a book called The Manual, How to Have a Number One the Easy Way. And they said, if you followed the instructions in the book and you didn't get a number one, uh, you could get your money back. That was that was the that was the boast of this book. And some bands followed it exactly and they did get number ones. Well, certainly in Europe, there was a, a band called Edelweiss that followed it exactly. And they had a big Euro number one uh, called Bring Me Edelweiss or something like that. And because they did things like that, it was easy to think that they knew what they were doing that they were in control in in some way, that it was all a plan, that they were, um, you know, powerful and wise and connected. And, and, and it just wasn't the case. It was it was much more blindly stumbling, you know, off the off the main path and through the darkened forest. And only in hindsight does it all look inspired. How much should we think of them as a comedy duo? I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but I mean, you mentioned that they had an, a Doctor Who record. Yeah. And it's a really good song, and it's funny. And yeah. their most most successful record was a collaboration with Tammy Wynette, in which yeah. the Queen of Country sings, they're justified, and they're ancient, and they drive an ice cream van. I mean, yeah. it's a bunch of nonsense. And it's funny, right? It's it's legitimate I, yeah, to say I, that that's, so. that's intentionally funny. I think so. And I think it's only towards the end, as it all got a bit darker, and as they were clearly burning out and um, they were getting into quite a, a dark, bad place, that the humour drops out of it. It's only at the very end that the humour drops out of it. Um, and once that's gone, they, you know, they're lost, I think. And then they're, then they're burning I, I, a million pounds. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Alan Moore pops up as a big character in this story. Yes, he does. Yes, any 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 excuse to put Alan Moore. Yeah, in I mean he's in he's in all of your books. <laughs> he does get in. Yeah, he does. He does pop up. Um, he's in this book because they consulted him about the burning because they wanted him to explain to them why they burned the money. And mm. he did explain. Yeah, for him it was a magical act, and he, you know, I, I talk, I talk at length about his ideas uh, regarding the territory where the ima- the imagination resides. He, he call he calls it idea space. It's a metaphor for where um, ideas are, and, and a lot of artists use similar sort of things. Like David Lynch has a very similar. Uh, notion that um, you have to go deeper out into this sort of what what Alan Moore called idea space. Uh, you have to venture deeper than a normal person would. This is this is the this is the place where um, you know ideas reside, and we kind of don't have much in the way of proper metaphors for it, uh, which makes Alan's version all the more useful because we don't really have any anything else. And, you know, Alan is, of course, a practicing magician. So he sees it very much in, in terms of magic and, and ideals. Uh, you know, the ideas are real things. You know, they're not they're not real in the, the way this this desk is real or a physical thing is real, but they're still real, you know. Uh, and the temptation to think, well, the immaterial, that don't matter, does it? That's nothing. You know, that's that's not a physical thing. And uh, that's the sort of thing he sort of rails about. And he, he's sort of arg- always arguing for the um, the vitality and the importance, I think, of the immaterial part of our existence. You know, because 
you know, if you if you if you look at the if you own a bookshop and you look at the history books, they're all accounts of power. You know, military power or political power or you know, economic power or or something like that. That's the, our our story, our history, our, our what made us us is told almost solely in terms of power and not say imagination. And imagination can seem like a trivial sort of irrelevant thing compared to you know, great wars and 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 things like that. But you know, ideas sort of they they, they shape our values and our values shape our actions and our actions create history and they're much more important than we um, give them credit for Um, to dismiss them is to dismiss a huge part of what makes us human and 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 what makes us act the way we do and so yeah so Alan's fascinating on on all this subject and I'd heartily recommend anyone to, to read him when he when he talks about this, there's an article which you can find online called Fossil Angels, which in which he argues that magic and art should essentially be considered the same thing. And it's 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 the sort of idea that fits really well into any attempt to explain what was driving Bill and Jimmy. You know, they, they, they were very much driven by imaginative impulses that they valued and saw as of, of the greatest importance in a way that to other people, you know, they were just crazy whims or something like that, that were just uh, irrelevant and unimportant. You've just put out the 10th anniversary edition of this book. What do you think looking back on it? And what do you think of the John Higgs of 10 years ago? Um, I mean, a lot of it needs a bit of a kick, you know, and a, a, a part, part of this new edition in which i I've written a load of new footnotes sort of looking back at it are my attempts to sort of, you know, demystify it and give it a bit of a kick. Cause it's one of those books that, um, I don't know, people, some people can hold up on such a pedestal that to me, it just feels a bit wrong. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's, it's a self-sabotaging part of my, myself but it's and, and i am delighted that it's read you know it's it's resonated with people on the level that it has and the, you know it's sort of kept selling and it's um and i love the way it's all all gone through world of mouth it's you know there's no it's been it's far away from you know the uh the establishment spotlight of the public publishing industry as you can get really a book like that you know it's, i'm never going to be invited to hay on why to talk about it or it's been it's never been built for a reward or you know i'll never be interviewed in the you know the broadsheet papers about it or any, anything like that it's just simply a book that came out and people read and they go i've got to talk to you about this so you're gonna to have to read it and they sort of force it on people and it keeps and it's kept going kept kept going for you know the past 10 years uh and i yeah i really i'm delighted about that but at the same time you know you just got to give these things a kick every now and again and point out the bits that you know, oh, really would have done that better now. <laughs> what do you think uh, Bill and Jimmy think of it? Well, Bill was delighted by it, or so his manager in, informed me when it when it came out. He was he was very pleased. In fact, just before it came out as a paperback, he sent me his notes on it. You know, with all these extra thoughts which I was able to incorporate it, which is very good. Jimmy, I don't think figures in it, and you know, enough. It's supposed to be a book about the KLF. 
just goes on on all these other sort of sidetracks and diversions. And and uh, we should just say now to anyone who thinks that after buying the book, it's going to be a comprehensible and comprehensive biography of the KLF. It is not that at all. <laughs> no, but I do, I don't think it is exactly what a book about the KLF should be. I think it captures their spirit. That, that's, that's more than I mean. a more than a real traditional biography could. Def, yeah, definitely. And I, I think uh, you'll learn more about the KLF from that book than you know the uh, I don't know the Wikipedia page or a proper account of the. I ain't I ain't talking about which studio they went into remix the twelve inch of such and such on such a date or anything like that. No interest in that sort of level of of, of uh, details. I, I appreciate a lot of people do love all that sort of stuff, but that's really not what this book is about. Um, Did you ever meet either Bill or Jimmy? Very very briefly. I met him, Jim. Jimmy's lovely. I met I just I met him twice now. Um, but the old, I've sort of kept away from Bill. Um, no, I'm not saying he's scary, you know, but it's just, it's the, the version of Bill in my head is like, I, I don't know how a real version could compete with the version of Bill I have in my head. So the, in fact, the only time I've, I've, I've met him was, um, when they had this comeback's not really the word, this event in 2017 in, in Liverpool, when they, they, they'd come back with this book called uh, 2023, this novel. And there was a, a, about three days of events around it. And I think it was the second day. Everybody was given, there was 400 people turn up and everyone was given a page from the book and they, they, had, a, they had to respond to it in some way. Okay, I, I mean, that's cute. a suitably nutty KLF type thing to do. Yeah, it is. It is a very, it's them, isn't it? It's very them. <laughs> um, and uh, Bill handed me this page and I said, thank you. And that's, that's, that's the entire, you know, history of our, or communications. <laughs> I don't know how you can be scared of a man who wanted to dismember a sheep live on stage at the Brit Awards. I know he's a sweet kid. <laughs> clearly, clearly, he is. He's, 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 he's um, you know, he's, he's got that gruff Scottish Presbyterian work ethic, which means you know, art for him is labour, and he's always at it, and he's always doing something, and he's setting himself tasks completing them it's a very serious sort of side to him as much as you say the result can often be like you know brilliantly funny john higgs thank you so much for coming back on the podcast (laughs) you're very welcome thank you this episode starred john higgs and was presented and produced by me vas christodoulou i make the show with esme bright and nicole wong and our editor is john doughty you can hear John Higgs's previous podcasts wherever you're listening to this. And you can find the new 10th anniversary edition of his book, The KLF, Chaos, Magic, and the Band That Burned a Million Pounds, wherever good books are sold. Till next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>